This morning we're continuing in our study of Matthew 22. We're in verses 23 to 33. I think we'll get through those verses this morning. And again, the background, the background is this. The Pharisees are challenging Jesus' authority. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. The authority of God has been challenged since Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. The authority of God has been challenged since Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. And so as we read this, let us not think, as so often we do, why are those men like that? Why don't they cooperate? Why don't they believe? Why don't they whatever? Because you see, what has happened is sown into the heart of every person as a result of Adam's disobedience is a deep rejection, repudiation, rebellion against God's authority. That's in every single person who has drawn breath. All of us are cloaked in the natural with the flesh, which is in constant, continual, repetitive rebellion against God. And that's why we find it so easy to agree with the flesh in sinning. But thank God, those of us who are saved have been given a love for and a submission to God's authority. Amen? And isn't that where the battle is over on the battleground of our flesh, the battleground of heart? So, again, who gives you this authority? Where did you get this authority? Who do you think you are? So, after already talking to the Sadducees, Uh, I'm sorry, to the Pharisees about remember the marriage thing in heaven. This lady is married, has been married to that man and that man and that man and that man. And we talked about that. I'm sorry, that's what we're talking about today. We talked about the tax last week, whose uh, image and inscription is on it. Today we talk about the marriage. So verses 23 to 28. Same day, Sadducees came to Jesus who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died having no children, left his wife to his brother, and to the second and to the third and down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So the Pharisees have had their mouth shut by Jesus' answer. Render unto Caesar. I'm sorry, Jesus' answer. Remember, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And they can't say anymore. They leave. But now the Sadducees will come in. And we're going to ask a theological question this time. And so the group of Pharisees approached Jesus with a question that sought to entrap him again about a very basic issue in the theology and a distinction of theological understanding between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees rejected the resurrection. On what basis? 
The basis of the Sadducees' rejection of the resurrection was simply this, and I think it is significant to get this. The word resurrection, may I repeat that? The word resurrection does not appear in the Torah. It isn't in the Old Testament. It isn't there. And because it isn't there, the Sadducees believe that if it isn't there, it isn't to be believed. It is to be rejected. If a word of theology isn't in the text itself, don't believe it. Now, I'll take a short, short caveat or whatever. One of the attacks against Christianity, remember Christianity is the faith in a triune God. We are monotheistic, believing in how many gods? One God, but in the one being of God there exists eternally three distinct, divine, co-equal persons. And there's a lot more to say about that which we said in the past. And so Christianity is a Trinitarian monotheism because each person of the Godhead is fully God in himself but not by himself or not alone. And the attack against that is simply this. What, Lester, you believe in the Trinity? Yeah. Show me the word Trinity in the Bible. Show me. You see, show me the word Trinity in the Bible. It's not there. And so many attack Christianity on the basis of this word, among other words, that are not in the Bible, that's not in the Bible, therefore supposedly invalidating or proving that we are false, believing in a false doctrine. Well, that's exactly what's happening with the Sadducees in relation to Jesus. What about this thing about the resurrection? And so what do they do? They create an absurd situation. Could care less about the woman and her marriages and her husbands or whatever. But to bring Jesus to a place of saying, well, yes, I believe in the resurrection, although the word's not there. Yeah, but if, and then they can get into a bait, debate with him. So they thought. Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong. Now, we always don't answer objections against our faith that way. And we really don't. But sometimes we should. Okay? Sometimes the Lord leads us to be very careful and gentle and patient and very carefully and slowly building an understanding and precept upon precept to explain something. And sometimes he just tells you, tell him, Chris, you're wrong. Make sure we get that. This is God's direction for us. Jesus says, you're wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Now remember, this young rabbi 
who has not been schooled in the theology. He's not going to seminary. He doesn't have any of these advanced degrees. He's just a carpenter's son from the city of Nazareth, for goodness sakes. He's not of the Levitical tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. (laughs) Who is he? And here he is, facing these men of authority and esteem and of education and of religious significance. And he said, you're wrong. The problem is you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. What do you mean don't know the scriptures? These men have been raised and steeped in the word of God. And not only that, the probability is that they have memorized vast, vast books of the Old Testament. Let alone a few verses that most of us know. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You see, the problem was that they knew the scriptures intellectually. They knew the word of God intellectually, but they did not know the God of the word. They did not have a fellowshipping, intimate relationship and walk and communion with the God of the word. And when we read the word of God and we hear the word of God and when we study the word of God, we want to be very, very careful not to do it because it is an intellectual pursuit. Although it is. But to do it most fundamentally that I am going to read and study and absorb myself in the word of God because this is the very means and only means essentially that God has given us by the Spirit to know the God of the Word. Amen? So people say, why should I read the Word? You won't know God. You don't know God. So their study of the Word was not a, what is not the product of transforming faith. It was a religious activity. And so because they had publicly challenged Jesus, Jesus is going to rebuke them publicly. And I believe that's the reason why he says, you're wrong and this is such. Because you see, when they're saying this, everybody's listening. And everybody wants to know, what does this rabbi say? Which way is it? Resurrection or no resurrection? And in their question, they have touched the most vital issue in Christianity. In their question, they have touched the most vital issue and the most central issue in Christianity. And that's why Jesus immediately says, you're wrong. You're wrong. Let's make sure you get it up front, guys. You are wrong. Man, Jesus is direct. Will you remember the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1? When these Judaizers were trying to add a work of the flesh 
to their faith in Christ as required by God to save and to keep them saved. There's the dis- distinction. And Paul comes out with guns of firing and he says he's effectively those who do that be anathematized. In other words, may they go to hell. And as I said last Sunday, you can imagine the preacher saying that from the pulpit. Those of you who disagree with this word, may you go to hell. Well, he'll be dismissed by the elders the next week. So, this is what's going on here. If I were to ask you, don't answer. What's more important, the cross or the resurrection? May I give you the answer? The answer is yes. The difficulty is this. That in some Christian circles, the cross is made more of than the resurrection. That's a big mistake. Now, am I putting down the cross? Does anybody know me more than that? But as I'll say, hopefully at the end, I need to get going. The cross is necessitated in order to get to the resurrection. Please keep this in your mind. The cross is necessitated in order to get to the resurrection. God is going somewhere and the resurrection is necessitated in order to get to the exaltation of Christ as a man. And the exaltation of Christ as a man is necessitated in order to get to the sending of the Holy Spirit. And the sending of the Holy Spirit is necessitated in order to get to the birth of the church. And the birth of the church is necessitated in order to get to the final full fruition of God's purpose to have a people in his image, praise God. Do you see this? So we have to see the entire chain. The entire chain. But in that chain, the resurrection is the pivot point. Well, I thought the cross, you see, we're going up through the cross to the resurrection. And once we get to the resurrection, and then now we're on the ground where God now will complete his work in his people. Verse 30, Jesus says, you're wrong. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor given in marriage, but they're like the angel of heaven, the angels of heaven. Then in verse 31, I won't go into that. I think that's pretty clear. Verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what it was said to you by God? And remember, he quotes from Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that? That's what he's quoting here. And he, then he, Jesus says, God is not the God of a bunch of dead people. He's not the God of over bones. He's the God of the living. He's the God of the living. 
And so you see, because the word resurrection is not in the Old Testament anywhere, the truth of the resurrection is in the New Test- Old Testament everywhere. Because the word Trinity is not in the Bible anywhere, the truth of the Trinity is in the Bible everywhere. Everywhere. Jesus then points them to the very scriptures that they had used to deny the resurrection. I don't see the word resurrection, so it's not in there. Moses didn't say anything about it. And, you know, nobody else said anything about it in the Old Testament. None of the prophets. And so Jesus goes to the very scriptures, to the very heart of the matter, to the man who stood before God to receive the commandments himself and who was the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books. And he says, look, look at what's happening in Moses. And I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not of the dead. And I think I have in your scriptures several Old Testament references that would give us insight into the resurrection. But I don't want to go into those this morning. And when the crowd, verse 33, heard it, they were astonished. Part of the astonishment here is this. I think it's at least two parts of the astonishment, two reasons for astonishment, at least two. There may be 13, but I know of two. First, they were astonished at how this carpenter, where does he get this wisdom and understanding and insight He's not been formally trained. Who is this man? Who is he? That even against the highest authorities in Israel, he stands like a rock and declares the truth. And every time they come against him to create a crack against his knowledge of the truth... They get shattered. Remember the rock upon which it falls and you fall upon the rock a few times ago. That's an astonishment. But the second part of the astonishment is this. The typical way in Judaism that scripture was understood and taught was the use of the scripture and then going to others who had given commentary on the scripture. So-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this. And so when teaching the scripture, the scripture, whatever, however long it is, is then annotated by all these other rabbis and references or experts. And I don't say that in a deprecating way, but that's how they did it. And so they gathered all this information to bring you revelation or understanding. That's how they did it. But Jesus just saying, here, here, let me tell you what the answer is. Here's the answer. Who's he going to quote? Which book is he going to use? Man, he ain't using no references. May I say this? And I want to say this first by, before I say this. So this is before this. And, and I say this not to say something about me, but to make a point. I love reading theology. 
I am constantly reading theology books. I have to read them because I know so little and I need to know more. So right now I'm just starting another one which is about 800 pages long. I love this. Gene would tell you, I love this. You go in my library. I don't have books that just bought and sat up there. You go in those books. I have read these books. Love it. But all of these books and any of the books that we recommend as a church are resources because the Bible is the source. And so make sure that as you read other books, and I would recommend that you do, Make sure you undergird first and create the foundation of the book so when you read these other references, you're getting what God wants to give you through these references. Amen? So I had to say something about what I read because it would sound like, wow, he's, not a, he's against us reading books. Source, the source and the resource. Now, Before going on to the next question, Jesus next asks the question. Sorry, there are two more questions. One by the lawyer and then by Jesus. Before going into those, I want to cover a few things. I want to talk about the resurrection a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about the resurrection in the next few minutes. And then when we get to the actual resurrection in what chapter of Matthew 28, okay, in 28, I want to talk in more detail about the significance of the resurrection. Because I don't want us to miss the cosmic significance of the resurrection. First, the cosmic significance of the cross. I want to do that when we get to the cross event. And then I want to talk about the cosmic, you know, significance of the resurrection when we get to that. But just a couple of comments this morning about that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul begins to explain the significance of the resurrection by first reminding the church that Jesus appeared to several believers. So before he begins to talk about the resurrection, he says, first of all, let me prove that it's real. So first thing about the resurrection, it's real. It happened. So Paul says this, and remember, he's writing to people who knew. He's writing a letter to a congregation who knew all these people and who knew whether or not these events were accurate or correct. And if any of this was not true, this didn't happen, that didn't happen, Paul's making it up. Then someone would have exposed Paul and proven that it wasn't right, and we would have had history from the same period of time that would have debunked the whole issue or notion of the resurrection not being true. But we ain't got none. Why? Because it is true. It's true. It's true. So what happened? Paul says this. Remember the resurrection? Remember he, Jesus appeared to Cephas, Peter. Remember that? Cephas, he appeared to Cephas. Then he appeared to 500 of us. 500. And he would, as if to say to the church, look around, a whole lot of y'all were in that five. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Remember that? And we'll, yeah, we remember that. He's writing to people who were part of the 500. Then he appeared to James. Remember, James is the brother of Jesus. He wrote the letter of James. You may have read that. And then Paul says, finally, he appeared to me. So Paul lays down the proof. 
the historical proof. Now, why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? I'm going to try to go through this succinctly and quickly, but to give you an overview of the background of the significance of the resurrection, at least in this particular category. In the resurrection, God has declared to the world that in the incarnational ministry of his divine son, you know what I mean by that? The son took on human flesh and was birthed as a man, Jesus. In the resurrection, God is declaring to all the world that in Jesus, the divine incarnation, the, the incarnation of his divine son, that in Jesus, through the resurrection, he is declaring that his eternal purpose for his people has been accepted and completed on their behalf. That's the essence of the purpose and the power of the resurrection. God said, I send my son into the world and I send him to the cross. And there's no way on earth to know whether God's purpose was really in Christ or that he was a maniac, a charlatan, a delusional man. There's no way of knowing that when Jesus dies. But God proving to the world, that's my son, and his death has been on the behalf of my people so that my people may be with me for eternity, having their sins forgiven and having been adopted into my family. I raise him up on the third day as a man to say to the world, he's my son and he's accomplished all my purpose for my people, for my people. This is what God is saying to the world in the resurrection. And in that you know, I always have to do this. In that, we are taken back to Genesis 1-1 and then to Genesis 1-26 to 28. Because the reason Genesis 1-1 is in there is made manifested, and the result of Genesis 1-1 is made manifested where? In the resurrection. And now Genesis one twenty six to 28 is made manifested and real and accomplished in the resurrection. We always have to go back to the beginning because what God is doing through the ages is moving that which he began forward to its completion. Amen? We must see the Bible this way or you're going to miss a whole lot of the glory. So what does that mean? One comprehensive work. Amen? The Old Testament and the New Testament, fully the work of God, begun in the old, announced and begun, and began to be fruition in the new. 
And on the day of resurrection, God finally has his man of his image upon the earth. And now that man will be glorified in the heaven so that in the glorification of this man as a result of his resurrection, his people may become his image bearers by the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's right. In the incarnation, you remember the Son of God took to himself a human body and soul, John 1, 14. And the word became and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten, one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he takes on a human body and soul. Why? To redeem us. Why? To fulfill God's original creation purpose. Why? Because God loves us. Why? Because God loves us. <clears throat> Why? Because God loves us. If you don't understand, go to Deuteronomy 7 where the Lord explains to Israel. Same thing. I put my love upon you because I love you. Why? I love you. Why? I love you. Do we need to really go any further than that? Do we really need to? He accomplished this. Jesus accomplished this by his sinless life. Remember Hebrews 4.15? Tempted in all ways such as we yet without sin. He accomplished this by his sinless life, which means his perfect obedience. He came as a man without sin. And in order to save us in order to cleanse us, in order to have his blood accepted as a pure, holy, complete sacrifice for our sin. He had to live an absolute, perfect, obedient life, which he did. And so Jesus' sacrifice is accepted, not only because he is the Son incarnate, but because he is the obedient son incarnate. It is on the ground of Jesus' obedience as a man that God can then pour upon him the total weight of our guilt and our corruption and our penalty so that as referring to his humanity, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and high priest. And as referring to his divinity, Jesus is the only one who can absorb fully and successfully the full wrath of God. Can you say amen? That's what's happening. And all of that is what's declared where? Where? In the resurrection. It's not declared at the cross because we don't know what's going on at the cross. All we know is the cross is a bloody man dying. But in the resurrection, it's like, oh, look now. And so it's as if the cross is our coming up the mountain. And we see the cross. But we don't understand what we're seeing. But then once we come up to the summit of the mountain called the resurrection, 
And as we look down on the cross and on the ministry of Jesus, then look at what has been going on. Because now I'm seeing it from the summit of the resurrection. Don't you see? Under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. It's an earthly and temporary. Get that, earthly and temporary. Some of you recognize Hebrews, the, uh, the letter to Hebrews. And the, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, an earthly and temporary location of God's presence, only once a year to make one sacrifice that year for the sin of the nation for that last year so that the people could be declared as cleansed and acceptable to God until the next year. And then it's another year. And then it's another year. And then it's another year. The continual sacrifice of the Lamb. Do you hear others saying today that there is a need for the continual sacrifice? It's Old Testament. It's not New Testament resurrection. But how did the people know if God had accepted the sacrifice? How do they know that when the high priest goes in, God has accepted it? Because the high priest comes out. He comes out of the sanctuary. How do we know that God has accepted the dying of his son on the cross as the forgiveness of our sin? Because Jesus comes back. He comes back. He doesn't have to come back as a man among us. He was raised. That was necessary. He was raised as a man. Absolutely required. But he could have ascended into heaven at that moment and remained there. But he came back for those 40 days. Why? Playing peekaboo. Peepie. Because when you see me, I'm here. And when you don't see me, I'm still here. And the proof that I'm displaying while I'm here is that God has raised me to show you. Not to show me, I know, but to show you that your sins are forgiven, are forgiven in my sacrifice. Amen? So he's playing peekaboo, Johnny. He's in and out. You remember, you read the story, certainly you saw the movie. He stayed on earth for 40 days for our benefit. He came back. However, as great as the Levitical system was, the sacrifice, remember the high priest and old temple and so on, it was not able to acquire, two words, full and permanent forgiveness. Make sure you keep those two words in your mind as you remember Christianity and the work of the cross and the work of the resurrection. The high priest was not able, because of a variety of reasons which we won't go into today, he was not able, the old system was not able, it was a system created by God as a system that stood temporarily for that which was coming. And so it pointed to something. So as it stood on earth, it was good and acceptable, but only as a temporary. It could not and did not provide full and permanent forgiveness. But Jesus' death and resurrection applied full and permanent forgiveness for how many of our sins? All 
of our sin for all time. Why? Let me just run through it quickly. I have ten, five, three things here. The priests were fallible. What does that mean? They sinned. They had to, they first had to have, um, um, what, um, what do you call it, bloodshedding for their own sins. They had to first sacrifice for their own sin, then they could do for the sin of the people. There's a religious system out there that before the priest can have the communion, he has to first do something for himself. Do you, do you remember that? It's the wrong system. It's Judaism. And Jesus said, it's finished. He had to make sacrifice for himself. Secondly, he had to cleanse the temple. Uh, the Holy of Holy, you know, inside, he had to cleanse it from the pollution of sin, of the people's sin. So they had to have a sin offering for that. Same thing you see on the altar of some churches today. The sacrifices were inadequate. There was no earthly uh, sacrifice that could cleanse from sin. You remember Hebrews 10, 4, the blood of what? Bull and goats? Hey, that won't work. It was good and it accomplished God's purpose being the purpose that was temporary and representative and anticipatory and guaranteeing the full reality in Christ. Colossians 2, 17. He is the completion the fulfillment. There's certain verses we just got to know. For these reasons, the Levitical system was created as a temporary shadow that represented and pointed to the perfect and permanent priesthood and the perfect and permanent temple and the perfect and permanent sacrifice for the full forgiveness of sin. Perfect, permanent, full forgiveness of sin. Therefore, we had to have a high priest who was perfect, sinless in his character, and sinless in his obedience, who could take himself to be the sacrifice offered by himself as the high priest, accepted, in, accepted by God. So when Jesus dies in the, at the cross, he goes into the holy of holies in the heavenlies. In the heavenlies. And he presents the blood of the everlasting covenant before the throne of God himself. And as the Old Testament high priest sacrifice was accepted and would return out of the tabernacle, so Jesus returns in the resurrection to announce the sacrifice for your sin has been accepted by the throne of grace. The throne of justice has become the throne of grace for his people. That's what's happening at the cross. And that's what's being declared in the resurrection. Apart from the resurrection, you and I would not be saved. We are saved in the death and resurrection life of Christ. We are not saved at the cross Forget it. We're saved because of the cross and the resurrection, which applies by the Spirit the good of that purchase and payment at the cross. Apart from that, there would be no salvation for any of us. You begin to see something of the significance of the resurrection. 
By the way, make sure if you haven't signed the School of the Word sign-in sheet. If you haven't done that, raise your hand and someone will get you a sign-up sheet if you came in late. Please, we would appreciate it so much. Just kind of look around, those of you. And if you haven't signed it, I forgot to ask. I'll try to do it next week on the way out. Thank you so much. So, look, Hebrews seven twenty four and 25. We're talking about the permanent high priest, impermanent Old Testament priest. Listen to these words, Hebrews seven twenty four twenty five. 25. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. The resurrection guarantees the permanent forever ministry of Christ before the throne of God as our continuing high priest. So in his presence, in his life, in his enduring manhood, we are are ever represented and accepted by God in Christ. If it ever should happen, and it won't, that Jesus as a man is ever gone from the presence of God, so are we all. We're maintained before God on the basis of a risen man. Can we get that? On the basis of a risen man. We were brought into Christ on the basis of a risen man. And we are sanctified in Christ on the basis of a risen man by the Holy Spirit. And we will be raised in Christ on the basis of a risen man. And we will rule and reign with Christ on the basis of a risen ruling man. It's all about him. Not about me. But we are the great beneficiaries. And there's one wonderful scripture. I have to stop. Hebrews 8, 1, 12. It's repeated in Hebrews 10, but he is seated. He is seated. The apostle says, look at such a high priest. He's seated. The Old Testament priest could not sit in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the uh, inner court, outer court rather, the holy place and the most holy place because there weren't any chairs. Why? Because the sacrifice was never over. Pertaining to our sacrifice uh, and the forgiveness of our sin and pertaining to his sacrificial death as completed, pertaining to that, Jesus sits. Ah, but there is another scripture where it says Jesus stands. Where's that? Acts chapter 7. 7. Where Stephen looks up and he says, Behold, I see the Son of God standing. Standing. Well, what's, I thought he was sitting, sissy. He is sitting as to your salvation completed. But he's standing now to the warfare of conducting his people as a captain of the Lord of hosts. He's our general who now oversees the forces of God, oversees the warfare, and is standing now to ever conduct the warfare. So he sits and he stands at the same time. <laughs> at the same time, he sits as to one aspect of his ministry and as to another aspect, what? He's standing. And how long does he do it? Forevermore. Because it says he ever lives. See you next week.